0: Episode 220 Rich Sheridan, CEO and Chief Storyteller at Menlo Innovations.
1: Well, my personal favorite is one that actually changed my
0: life. I'm Mark Graben. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes because we all make mistakes. But what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is the place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth, and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. To learn more about Rich, his company, his books, and more, look for links in the show notes or go to markgraven.com slash mistake220. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome back to My Favorite Mistake. I'm Mark Graven. Our guest today is Rich Sheridan. He is the co-founder, CEO, and as, as he describes, chief storyteller at Menlo Innovations. they software and IT consulting firm based in Ann Arbor, Michigan. They've earned numerous awards and press coverage for their innovative and positive workplace culture. So Rich, beyond that, is the author of two books. His first book was called Joy, Inc., How We Built a Workplace People Love. And his latest book was published in 2019, Chief Joy Officer, How Great Leaders Elevate Human Energy and Eliminate Fear. So, Rich, uh, welcome to the podcast. How are you today?
1: Great, Mark. Wonderful to be with you. Good to see you again.
0: Yeah, it's good to see you. Um, for people who are watching on YouTube, um, we're getting a little glimpse behind you of uh a workplace people. low environment, yes. Okay, hi. <laughs> Rotating the camera. Hi, the back of uh, your colleagues there. Um, and, and when Rich says, good to see me again, it's good to see him again. You know, compared to some guests who are sort of meeting for the first time during a pre-call, I've interviewed Rich twice in uh, my podcast series called Lean Blog Interviews. Uh, we've crossed paths at conferences, including the Michigan Lean Consortium. That's the, the polo shirt. Rich is wearing there today. Um, are you going to be at the, at the conference again this year in August?
1: You know, uh, I don't know. I may okay. well be. It, you know, it is hard to turn down an opportunity to go to Traverse City, Michigan in August.
0: Yes, yes, that, that is true. And it's a great organization and a great event. So I'll be up there again this year. I hope to see you or some of your, um, your colleagues. I saw Rich speak at that conference last year. And then I've been able to visit. Now, it was not this office. Um different Menlo Innovations office, previous office back in, in 2014. You've moved. Yes, we just
1: moved about five months ago. Yeah. So we're just settling in still. Almost. No longer
0: in the no longer in the basement. You're moving on up. Right.
1: We have I would say we have sunlight, but it's Michigan in spring. <laughs> we have natural light right now. Yeah. Sunlight will come in the summertime.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're almost there. Um, you know, so Rich, we're going to have a chance to talk about your books and a little bit more of the culture and, and what you're doing there at Menlo. Um, I want to ask first before getting into the favorite mistake story. Um, the title, Chief Storyteller, like t- tell us a little bit about what that means to you, how that came to be.
1: Yeah, it was kind of a title anointed onto me by the team. Um, and uh, Mark, as you know, we uh, our culture is interesting enough that thousands of people a year ignore the pandemic years, of course, would get on airplanes, travel from all over the world to come visit us, spend anywhere from a day to a week learning about our culture, learning about our practices, our processes, and so on. We share what we've learned with the world. There's nothing we're trying to keep a trade secret. We are an open book for the world to come visit. And of course, I lead a lot of those tours. I teach a lot of the classes we teach, not all of them. And in the process of sharing what we've learned over the course of the 22 years of Menlo and my own personal 20 years before that, I find the best way to share that is through story. Telling stories of triumphs and tragedies of the past, stories of vision of the future, of where we're headed, what we're trying to accomplish. And the team eventually became quite enamored with my storytelling prowess because I was doing it so often. and they just Tapped me on the shoulder one day and said, Rich, we're going to add this title to your business, <laughs> Chief Storyteller.
0: Yeah. Well, so now that doesn't set any pressure here I'm going to ask you to tell. <laughs> I'm going to ask you to tell a story. But, I, you know, I don't know if it's from your time at Menlo or different things you've done before. You know, mm-hmm. Rich, thinking back, what would you say is your favorite mistake?
1: Well, my personal favorite is one that actually changed my life. Um Back in around 1997, I was a senior level leader at a public company here in Ann Arbor called Interface Systems. Bob Nero, the CEO, who was two or three levels above me, um, brought me into his office and made me an offer. And he said, Rich, I, I heard a lot of good things about your leadership, your skills, uh, how you help direct uh, the technical efforts of our teams because I was embedded in the R and D part of the company. And he said, I'd really like to promote you maybe not tomorrow, but over the next year or so to head up all of the R and want to make you the VP of R and D of all of interfaces, which kind of a neat offer, right? Uh, you know, one of those career moments, I think I'd been out of college then by about 15 years. So it felt like the right kind of timing for me. And, uh, and I looked at him and I said, No way. Wow. I said, I am not interested in signing up for the uncapped personal commitment that comes with being a VP mm. at a troubled public company.
0: Mm. Why well, why 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 troubled and, and what would yeah. what did you think would be involved then? So
1: what I had witnessed, Mark, over all these years at that point was that um you know, and this, and I was part of it, so it wasn't like I was innocent of all of this. But uh, um, I was seeing projects that were failing on a regular basis, uh, phones ringing off the hook with quality problems of software we'd already put out in the world, missing deadlines, blowing budgets, having unhappy users, unhappy customers unhappy project sponsors within the company it was i mean i was literally coming out of a trough of disillusionment at this point in my career and here's bob saying and now i want you to take over all the r&d efforts for the company and i was part of a unit that was having this trouble but i knew all the other units were too and so why would i sign up for all that trouble and bob who is a very gentle guy i will tell you he's one of the most wonderful human beings you meet Threw me out of his office, yelling at me. This isn't quite the way he remembers it. But certainly, the way it felt for me—that he was—he was upset with me that I wouldn't grab this position. And um, you know, uh, but I thought I, I can't do it now. Interestingly enough, and you and I have probably read many of the same books over the years. Tom Peters in Search of Excellence. Peter Drucker's books on management, Peter Senge's book, The Fifth Discipline, on the Art and Practice of Building a Learning Organization. I had been studying organizational design principles for much of the last 15 years because I knew there had to be a better way. So I went home that night after having told my boss no, and he was relatively new to the company. He'd only been there a year or so. So here I am, you know, almost abrogating a relationship with a guy who's going to be my big boss, Right. And uh, and I thought about the opportunity you put in front of me, and I thought about what I wanted to do in my own career. I thought about this picture of things can be better. I didn't know exactly how, but all these books I've been telling me is there are companies that had achieved this greatness. They didn't actually the books didn't actually tell me how to do it myself, but but it at least gave me hope that there was a better picture. And so I went in the next morning. Asked if I could see Bob again. And I said, Bob, I'll take the job on one condition. Now, you can imagine Bob's looking at me like, wait a minute, what do you mean one condition? You just quit on me yesterday. And I said, no, nah, one condition. He says, what is it? I said, I need your help. I said, I want to build the best damn soccer team that this town has ever seen. And I can't do it without you. And he looked at me saying, What on earth happened between yesterday <laughs> afternoon? Yeah, this morning. And I told him my journey. I told him my story. I told him what I was want- wanting to accomplish in my career, what I thought was possible that I had never gotten to. And I didn't even know how I was going to get there. I just knew that this was the kind of opportunity that comes once in a lifetime. And I will tell you, Mark, that the reason this is my favorite mistake, that literally changed the course of my life that
0: discussion that day wow and I mean it's good you had the opportunity to have it I mean you said Bob threw you out he didn't fire you but no, you, it was you, more you, like I mean the, okay you know, I gotta uh, go yeah. to plan B I don't know what plan B uh, is yeah you
1: messed up everything for me you know and it was like you were the guy rich you were the I thought you were the guy clearly I was wrong you know um and and he was right I was the guy I knew that. And uh, and Bob and I are still incredibly close friends to this day. And I tell him beyond uh, a shadow of a doubt that Menlo innovations would not exist today were it not for his influence in my life back mm-hmm. at
0: systems. So and it sounds like what you're saying, the, the mistake was saying no, but you were able to recover from yeah. that at least. Yep. Well, I think a lot of yeah. us
1: probably make decisions. And we wonder, do we have to stick with those decisions? Because I could have gone home that night and said, well, I threw that opportunity away. I wonder when the next one will come. And I decided, no, I'm going to reconsider. And, you know, and part of that was eating some humble pie, Mm. right? Because it was not a pleasant conversation with Bob the previous day. So I had to come in a little bit between my legs and say, hey, I've thought about it again.
0: Yeah. Um, well, it's interesting. I mean, uh, your recollection of it sounds like, I mean, he he didn't, he wasn't prepared to, in that first discussion, to try to convince you, apparently. He heard you say, no way, and it must have sounded real definitive, or, I mean, it seemed like no, it was right. a chance he could have probed, or will help me understand, or let me convince you. I think he,
1: and, and it wasn't like the first time we had hinted at this kind of thing. Mm this was the first time he was making it entirely clear what my career path was going to be. He even, even cleverly threw in, he says, you know, Rich, you have those three teenage daughters who are going to want to go to college and are (laughs) going to get married someday. So I think, you know, the, the stock options we're going to put in (laughs) your, you're going to help quite a bit uh, with that, which he was right about uh, all fronts. Um, But uh, you know, I think he had thought he had built a plan. I think he had thought he had done all the homework he needed to do. And this was just confirming everything. And I look at him and say, uh, not interested. Yeesh. Right. So, I mean, some some mistake. Some, yeah. He thought it was a done deal as yeah. I was walking in the room. So, maybe it was both of our favorite mistakes you know, at that point. Uh, so. Yeah.
0: Well, so then you, you ended up down that path. I mean, you, you told him. Or he agreed to give you help. How specific did you have to be in terms of saying, hey, Bob, here, here's what I mean by help or what types of action? Yeah, you know, I didn't, I will say I didn't know at that time, Mark, exactly.
1: Like, I didn't know how hard it was going to be. What, I, what happened in that night for me was a change of conviction. I went from trough of disillusionment to I'm excited about the unknown of the future. I am interested in doubling down on my effort to figure out how can I turn this thing around? And quite frankly, for two years from that conversation forward, all I did was try harder. And I'll be honest with you, it didn't work. I mean, yeah, did things get a little better? Yeah, but it was like 5% better, 10% better. I needed like 200% better in order to really escape but two years in, uh, I met my co my future co-founder James Goble, as a consultant. Um, I read a book by a guy named Kent Beck on a new way of programming team organization called Experience Programming, and I saw the industrial design firm IDEO highlighted on nightline uh, as they redesigned the shopping cart just five days. And it literally produced this click moment, which those come when You prepared your mind for so long. You've gone through some painful episodes. You've had some nascent thoughts about how to get it. And then all of a sudden, click. Everything became clear. And that's when I really needed Bob. Because the kind of change I was about to make was actually going to be expensive. And um, so I put together a plan. This is maybe my second favorite mistake.
0: Yeah, okay, bonus story.
1: (laughs) I don't know if you ever get two, but we can um,
0: sometimes go ahead.
1: Yeah. But uh, I went to Bob telling him what I wanted to do with my technical team. And I told him I wanted to teach him object oriented programming and I wanted to reorganize how they worked and all that. And I wasn't connecting with Bob. You know, he could hear the words. He could tell I was excited and he was encouraged by that, of course. And then he started asking me the key question that every CEO would ask somebody like me who's heading up the most expensive part of the company. He says, "How much is it going to cost me?" Right. And I said, "Bob, the money doesn't matter." Mm. I said, "This is so critical to where we're going as a company, and so on." He's like, "Rich, you're scaring me. How much?" Is <laughs> he it he did. Cost? He didn't agree with the
0: whole the money doesn't matter.
1: So like, I told him, I said, "Bob, this will be at least a million dollars to get this transformation going." And he threw me out of his office again. (laughs) And again, I thought through. I tried a few more times. He wasn't biting. Mm -hmm. And one day I came back to him and I said, Bob, I've been thinking about this really hard. And here's what I see happening Interface Systems is running out of cash. Mm. We're a public company, we're meeting quarterly as the executive team, we're meeting with board members. And the cash is going to run out before I get the new products you're counting and i'm done. And he goes, Yep, that's a good assessment, Rich. I said, I know how this works. There's only three routes out of this secondary offering on the public market, sell more shares, private equity placement, we go private. Somebody acquires us. He goes, Yep, those are the only three options available to us, Rich. I said, Bob. Any one of those options, they're going to send a due diligence team, Mm -hmm. interface systems. They're going to look at our people, our process, and our products. They're going to come to my end of the building. And I said, we're not going to pass muster. That deal will fall through, and we will go bankrupt. I said, that's why I need to do this deal. He signed off on it that afternoon. What was the difference? My mistake was I was talking to him in terms I understood. Yeah, my realization after the mistake was I had to put myself in Bob's shoes. What were the challenges Bob was facing? I had to learn to speak Bob's language. Mm. Once I did that, he in, that, now the support was, now he was introducing me. He was bringing me to board meetings to present what I was going to do. He was introducing me to significant shareholders of the company to double check because Bob was careful. I mean, he's running a public company, he has to be. But all of those people bought in and So literally, over the next two years, we worked together to transform interface systems into something that looks like Menlo does today.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. And every every time I slowed down, Bob would put his gentle hand on my shoulder and say, Rich, I got you covered. You're doing the right Mm -hmm.
0: thing. Yeah, yeah. Wow. I mean, I think there's there's definitely some great generalized advice there about um, when communicating or pitching something, whether that's to your boss, to... Customer, customer, to put yourself in their shoes and speak their language, and talk about benefits as much as the you know not not just what we're going to do, but here's why why it matters, why we should do this.
1: Yeah. yeah, and my
0: mistake in that conversation early on was
1: I was just I was spewing out all the technical jargon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? We're going to learn Java. We're going to learn object-oriented programming. We're going to learn how to do automated unit testing. Bob's like, okay, is that important? You, know, it's like, you seem really excited about it, Rich. Yeah.
0: You so know, then he,
1: after, well, I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say, and his question was, what will I get for all that investment? You know, yeah. or Just having smarter programmers wasn't particularly interesting. <laughs>
0: yeah. So then how long did you continue down that pathway then before starting Menlo?
1: So uh, James and I, I brought James in as a consultant. We paired together and moved everything forward. And we rebuilt interface systems within about six months and ran it that way for two years. Two years from 1999 was 2001. Yeah. Internet bubble had burst. Ah. Interface systems, exactly as I predicted, Mark, Tumbleweed Communications took an interest in us. Sent a due diligence team to interface. Within six months of the conversation I had with Bob, they came in. They came to my end of the building. They looked at my my newly retrofitted people, my newly retrofitted process, and the newly building products. And they bought us like that for 10 times the share price Mm. of the day that I talked to Bob. So that happened within six Mm -hmm. months. And Bob, to this day, credits at sale to what I had done with my team. So so the prediction came exactly true. Mm -hmm. They bought us in September of 2000. And uh, by uh, April of 2001, they had to shutter every remote office they had, not because of trouble at Interface, but because of trouble at the parent organization. Their stock had slumped. They had been buying everything with shares, and they had to shutter every remote office they had, including our Ann Arbor office. And uh, so that afternoon, I'm going home with, you know, no job, no paycheck, no stock options. Uh, The number for the unemployment office was rattling around in my head somewhere. And I told my wife, and uh, she said, "Uh, what are we going to do? And I said, well, I'm not unemployed, honey. I'm an entrepreneur now because they can't take away what I had learned in those two years. And that become the became the basis for what would become the Menlo innovations.
0: Yeah. Uh, and then you, you have that opportunity then to really explore some of these different ideas and different ways of doing things. Um, you know, there at Menlo. And you know, you've written two books with the word joy in the title. Um, what, how, I mean, first off, how do you define joy in a workplace setting? And then what's your role as as CEO and in, in helping others find joy or be joyful? Sure. Yeah,
1: and I differentiate, Mark, between joy and happiness. Uh, I don't think you can do the hard work of any company without and, and be happy every minute, every day, at least not without medication. Uh, joy is the much longer arc. Yeah. And for, uh, for people in more technical professions, engineering professions, in my case, software, um, I believe there is only one definition of joy for a team like mine, and that is to see their work get out into the world and delight the people it's intended mm-hmm. to serve. Mm-hmm. So much that they come back later and say, I love what you've created. Your work has made my life better. That is joy for our team. When we see the work of our hearts, our hands and our minds deliver to the world. That's what I was being denied in my previous prof of disillusionment days. If We ever shipped at all. We were shipping poor quality, poor usability, Everybody was frustrated with it. We were, phone calls were ringing off the hook saying, This doesn't do what I need it to do. It doesn't solve the right problems. Even when it does, it doesn't do it correctly because there's bugs and errors. And it was like, Oh my gosh, there is zero joy in that. Right. And I love the Deming quote mm-hmm. that says, All anyone asks for is a chance to work with pride. Yeah. And those days of bugs and errors and missed deadlines and blown budgets. There was no pride in those days. Right. Now, what we see is our regular and systematic ability to deliver quality work to our clients that actually is used yeah. and through the people it's intended to serve, the end users of the software. That's how we define joy. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't believe for a second you could produce that kind of joy in the world without having some joy in the room. Yeah. So there's a lot of things we do. And I would say you asked, you know, what's my role in all of this? I think number one, my role is to inspire.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And the way I do that is through storytelling. I think the chief storyteller title is actually probably my most important.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the deming connection that you make there, um, that we're talking about books that we've read, <laughs> similar um, influences there. Deming would talk about he would use words like pride and joy, and I mean, kind of going in a different branch of uh, the literature there. Uh, I mean, it sounds like you're helping get people further up toward, I think, what Maslow called self-actualization, right? Not just providing a paycheck and a steady job, but just the the that that sense of accomplishment that they can that they can feel good about. They're, uh, yeah. they're delighting, bringing joy to customers. Then, I mean, feeling good about your work that's that's real important. Yeah.
1: You know, and Mark, I will say we pay our people well here, but we're not at the top of the scale. Um, You know, anybody here who works here for any amount of time can leave Menlo tomorrow and find a higher paying job somewhere else. Um, My view of the word compensation, if we look at the dictionary definition of compensation, to me, it's if you have a table that's out of kilter, that the four legs aren't even and the table's wobbling. You know, like the restaurant table sometimes you get at where your beer is going to tip off because <laughs> the table's wobbling. Right. Yeah. What do we do? We we stick some coasters under the leg that's short. We compensate. Mm. I think the word compensation in our professional work environments is one where, of course, we have to pay you a lot of money. It sucks to work here. Your <laughs> life is out of kilter. We have to compensate. Right. Uh, right on that and and yeah. i'm not saying we get away with paying our people low wages right either, right but they're not walking out the door saying why am i working here mm-hmm. i mean if i gotta work in a sucky environment i'll at least go work somewhere i can make more money
0: yeah right yeah i mean that's that's all really important and 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 having that 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 pride and joy and that connection you know, to, to what they do really matters. There's another Deming word that, that you talk about a lot, you know, Deming would say eliminate fear. You mm-hmm. know, that's what you've know, you talked about and written about why, why tell us what that means to you. Cause I, I think sometimes, um, you know, people might hear that phrase and they might have different interpretations. And they I might say, well, isn't a little bit of fear good. I mean, if we fear our competition or what, wow. but what, how do you explain this?
1: Absolutely. There is no question that a certain amount of fear keeps us all on our toes. We should. Fear not being able to make payroll. We should fear going out of business. We should fear our tribal competitors. Absolutely. Why, why wouldn't we do that? We why we look both ways when we cross the street. Right. Right. Fear <laughs> getting hit by a car. The, there are the fears, fears that actually keep us alive every day. Right. The fear I talk about is the one that I think there must be some special class at every business school in, in the world that teaches you how to try and motivate people. <sighs> by artificially manufacturing
0: fear. Right. Mm. Yeah. And,
1: you know, and, and it, sometimes market can be as simple as a raised eyebrow in a meeting. Mm. Or a, here we go again. Right. Right. I mean, you think about those feelings in a business meeting where the top guy is like, great, wonderful. Mm. Here we go again. All of a sudden, what happens? Everybody's blood pressure rises, their adrenaline starts pumping, and the most interesting part of our brain shuts down because we are afraid. The part of our brain that's going to produce creativity, imagination, invention, and innovation, gone. We're now in full reptile brain. And I will tell you, there is no benefit to any business on planet Earth these days where you're not going to move faster and further ahead if you if you don't have creativity, imagination, invention, and innovation, right? And yep. uh, it's more critical now than ever. And so we have very explicit, I, I, I uh, it's not rules, but uh, sort of concepts here about fear. Um, one is uh, when we're interviewing, we pair people during the interview because we do pair work here. You can talk about you want. Uh, We pair people during the interview and we tell you your job. You're paired with another candidate who's competing for the same position you are. We say, your job is to help the person sitting next to you succeed. Make your partner look good. Demonstrate good kindergarten skills. And this is teaching them our culture from the moment of first contact because that's the way it works here. We tell them our interview process is trying to weed people in rather than weed people out. And people are like, what? I mean, every process I've ever had, they're trying to like cut everything in half, push half the, you know, throw resumes out before they even talk to the people and all that kind of stuff. Like, why would we do that to human beings? Why don't we give them the best chance to succeed? Some other big statements here, make mistakes faster. Mm -hmm. Is that because we prefer making mistakes? We're human. We prefer not to make any mistakes. What we prefer to do is make small mistakes quickly so we can correct them before they kill us. Yeah. Right? And uh, one of our big posters in the room is fear doesn't make bad news go away. Fear makes bad news go into hiding. You know, (laughs) my favorite statement about the Toyota culture is no problems is a problem. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And their charts will have red dots on them. There's other large automotive organizations where their charts are always all green. Yeah. Right. And if it's always all green, you're not going to figure out what do we need to focus on? Where should we focus our attention?
0: Right, and it seems like I mean this is all. It seems like it's all very interconnected. Um, reducing fear of admitting these small mistakes means that you know about them, and it's not like the focus then is on learning and iteration and and, and progress. So if 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 there's this fear of well, you know, you can never be wrong, you can never fail, even on a, on a small scale. Yeah, that that gets really harmful, dysfunctional. Right.
1: Yep yeah we are uh, uh a recent customer of ours uh you know it takes a while for a customer to get used to us, and this one hasn't yet I will just say uh and talk to me in six months whether you know maybe my next biggest mistake was actually letting this customer in the room but um uh they sat in a meeting with us and they they pointedly said, I don't ever want to see you hear you guys say I don't know' Mm. Mm. and don't ever tell me you're just guessing what the answer is right you're being honest right i mean right i mean one of the biggest posters in our room is it's okay to say i don't know it's like oh my i got some teaching to do for this customer because let me tell you there are going to be a lot of times doing what we do for a living that we just don't know and we're gonna tell you right rather than fake it you know
0: (laughs) right i mean what's the difference i mean toyota people Are are fond of of, of trying to draw out what do we know. And if we know it, how do we know it versus what's an assumption or a hypothesis or a guess until real information kind of fills in behind? And there's another phrase you used. I was going to ask you about, let's run the experiment.
1: Right. Yes. Tell, Tell us more about that. Yeah. So um, you know, I think a lot of companies get paralyzed. Uh, somebody has a new idea, they want to try something, and the initial instinct is well, let's take a meeting. Mm-hmm. Maybe if it's a bigger idea, well, we'll form a committee to write a policy about that. <laughs> right. Any of those approaches is going to kill the idea in a second. And you kill enough ideas in succession, ideas stop flowing. Yeah. Here, our attitude is take action versus take a meeting. Yeah. Let's try stuff and see if it works. And if it doesn't, abandon it. And so our favorite phrase is, Yeah, I don't know if it'll work. Let's run the experiment. Well, this lifts the human energy of our team, right? Because now you got a place where people are like, hey, I'm running an experiment today. I'm trying this. I don't know if it'll work. It's okay. We run experiments all the time here. And guess what? You want to do continuous improvement? And I think Mike Rother would be right there with us in this conversation. Run a series of small experiments and then pay attention to what actually happens. Right right the biggest disconnect in experimentation is you only run experiments where there's a known result <laughs> that's not that's not
0: an experiment exactly
1: <laughs> that's <laughs> there's no learning
0: going on there that's experiment theater perhaps yes uh, that's right call it that but um yeah i mean it's just that ability to go and test an idea and y- y- you know you talk earlier about small mistakes versus big mistakes in these different situations and you know, there's a difference between, um, you know, wanting to run an experiment. I'll think of an example from Kinexis of like the way we run uh, a webinar, the way we facilitate a webinar. I might have an idea. Someone else has an idea. We we talk it through. We think about here's how we think it's going to work. Maybe we'll do a little testing. We'll learn something and then we'll do something differently in a, a public way. And we might say, well, what, what, what's the worst that can happen? Like, really? OK, if there's something that goes wrong. um no, I mean, fine, let's run the experiment. It's pretty risk-free, as opposed to back to your example of, you know, thing in the busy street behind you. I want to run an experiment of blindfolding myself and just trying to cross the street. My hypothesis is cars will stop. Yeah. Like, well, come on, that's not that's not really a reasonable experiment to run,
1: right? Yeah, it it's a little bit hilarious that you would mention that because Ann Arbor being Ann Arbor and the University of Michigan and the Center for uh mobility and that, um, there are a lot of experimental autonomous vehicles running down the street. So I'm trying to imagine putting the blindfold on and walking out in front of the other experiment that's going on where somebody's got a self-driving vehicle.
0: Yeah, yeah. But I mean, there's a progression of experiments, I bet, when you're developing something new, right? You know, what what small scale or what private, I'm sure the people doing the um, autonomous vehicles do a lot of testing in ways that eliminate the risk. Like testing in a big open empty parking lot or something before moving it out into slightly less controlled environments, it might be a reasonable progression that is focused on learning and iteration instead of this bureaucracy of oh we got to have it all figured out before we try.
1: Yeah, and what I love about the way we work and the way the agile software development community has evolved over the last twenty years is this idea of iterative and incremental approach to software, where you do small cycles. That plan, do, check, act cycle, in our case, we do it once a week. Um, and, you know, I remember one time early on when we were doing this in interface systems, long before the word agile was coming into the forefront, we were just doing iterative and incremental. And one of my old-time engineers, the uh, Cogity engineer, looked to me and goes, if this was such a good idea, why didn't NASA do this when they went to the moon? <laughs> and I looked at him and I said, that's a great example. They did. He says, what do you mean? I said, well, do you remember Mercury that went like suborbital and then they put a dog in and they put a monk in and then they put John Glenn in and he went around the earth and Alan Shepard and then they tried to walk out and then there was Gemini and then there was, you know, and and we just did it recently, right? We just sent the Artemis one capsule unmanned around the moon and come back again. Yeah. A lot of people would look at it and say, well, what a waste of money. They should have put the people in. <laughs> no. no, given what SpaceX did yesterday, <laughs> we know we don't put the people in right away, right? Because we're pushing the envelopes of things everywhere, everywhere we can. So we're going to take those measured approaches, those small experiments, try it out, see what happens, learn from it, and then try the next one or abandon. That's okay too. And what what I love about the word experiment, because when you say the word experiment, people are like, "Oh, well, yeah. I mean, it might not
0: work, but let's okay. try it." Right. So we, it's I wanted to probe a little bit more. I think it's fascinating you brought up the idea, without naming names, of course, here of like uh, if customers getting used to working with you, and um, you know, trying to find it, or they're they're doing an initial. An experiment. Whether they're framing it this way, they may have they may view it as we've made a decision to work with Menlo Innovations. Um, is is how, how do you go through? Maybe, maybe ask a, a broader question because maybe there's parallels. So you talk about interviewing. You talk about you know selling and, and 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 maybe choosing which customers are the best fit for you. Are um, what what have you learned about trying to maybe minimize the time where the customer or you? or the candidate, or you end up thinking, oh, this was a mistake.
1: Yeah, so we one of the things we look at, Mark, is that the human relationship between our teams is more important than the technology that we're building. And so what we look for are, what are some small projects, kind of like dating a new customer, right? Because by the time we really get into a project, it can last years. Absolutely feel like we've married our customers. And and I will tell you, when that happens, it is delightful. We We have multiple clients that have been with us for 10 years, coming back with project after project after project. And they know how we work. They know why we work. They know what its value is. They can play our little orchestra here as well as we can. Uh, but those early customers who fantasize the software is easy and it just <laughs> yeah. you've, you've done this a hundred times before, you know, you should be able to snap this out in a week. Um, we will start with a smaller projects, smaller engagements, start building the human relationship, start to see where the disconnects are, and quite frankly, start telling some stories. Mm-hmm. Because I will tell you, without the stories, Menlo doesn't make sense. Mm. Or we pair people in a big open room. We switch the pairs every five days. We write these automated unit test frameworks around the code, which means half the lines of code we're writing at least are test lines that won't ship with the actual product. And people who fantasize the software is easy. are like, why are you doing all this? Sounds really expensive. Well, it is. Until you consider the expense of the cost of delivering poor quality, right. a product that doesn't meet the user's needs and never gets used. Right, right. If, if you spend two million dollars with us and the product actually launches successfully in the marketplace, versus one million dollars with somebody who can do it half as cheap as us, but it never gets used, that feels like a divide by zero error.
0: <laughs> right. Um. So our guest today, uh, Rich Sheridan, um, CEO and Chief Storyteller at Menlo Innovations. Um, I'll, I'll put links to the company and uh, his books and, and previous podcasts that I've done with Rich uh, before. But let me let me ask one other question before we wrap up, Rich. You know, back to this idea of doing things differently. Um, Menlo Innovations, we talk about the interviewing process might not be everyone's cup of tea. Same thing might apply. You know with with customers and 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 you're trying to find you know people who are a fit to that style of work you mentioned earlier the paired work, which I think has origins in paired programming, but you've extended that tell tell us a little bit more about that not just the paired interviewing but now the sure. paired work and
1: Yeah, when people come to visit Memo, they're looking at a lot of different things. We're we're a very visual management-oriented company, which appeals a lot to the lean community, of course. We do paper-based planning, which blows the minds of people in my industry. Like, why aren't you using software for this? And we tell them, we choose tools that work better for humans. Um, But uh, the part that they're just blown away by, even if they knew it when they were coming in the door that they were going to see it is, Two programmers, for example, sitting side by side at one keyboard, sharing a keyboard and a mouse, working together all day long. Then they find out our high-tech anthropologists work like that, our QA people work like that, and they see evidence of this everywhere in the company, and they're like, why do you do that? Doesn't that double your costs?" Well, you know, the simple example with programming is, yes, indeed, it would double the cost if you believe for a second that the... um, that the cost of programming was directly related to the programming or the typing speed of our programmers, right? If that was the case, we would just teach our programmers typing, you know, we would just give them typing classes. Right. But everywhere at Menlo, what we are doing, and particularly the innovative projects we work on for our clients, you know, building custom software for all kinds of stuff um, is, uh, is a problem solving contest. And we are typically solving problems. No one has ever solved before, not just Menlo. And so two people are always better at solving problems together than they are apart and solving well. Uh, the other big problem that we avoid is this, what I call the tower of knowledge problem. I will tell you, you'd show me any software team that works in the traditional fashion, and I will ask the executive Tell me the first name of one of your towers of knowledge, and they will snap them out like that. Mm -hmm. Eric, Bill, Susan, Jim. Like, great. What if they left tomorrow? If they left tomorrow, I'd be out of business. Right. We literally had a multi-billion dollar life insurance company here, and they said if four of our programmers leave, we won't be able to conduct our business anymore. Can you imagine that? That they were willing to take that kind of risk, given they're an insurance company. (laughs) like you guys are supposed to be mitigating risk not, right. not uh, endorsing it and so uh you know the knowledge problem in the software industry is incredibly strong yeah. and we don't have that here no one here owns a piece of line of code uh you know the, the pair switching means that everybody has knowledge of what's going on which means people can take vacations without taking laptops
0: with them. yeah yeah and and it seems like boy when when a company is beholden to those towers of knowledge it's maybe a reverse situation bob asked you hey rich you've got daughters who are going to go to college and weddings to pay for it could then flip where those towers of knowledge come to the boss and say hey hey boss you're you're you've got kids going to college soon (laughs) (laughs) you you want to get your bonus don't you
1: (laughs) right yeah i once asked an executive i was talking about towers of knowledge he goes yeah but bill's so happy here i said really let's go talk to Bill." So we did. We walked down the hall. We found his Tower of Knowledge. And I said, Bill, if you won the lottery tomorrow, are you coming to work the next day? And Bill smiles. He says, absolutely. And the boss is just beaming. See how happy Bill is? Bill says, yep. I'd come in throw my cell phone in the garbage, say goodbye to all my friends, and I'm out of here. And the
0: boss is like, what? Yeah, wait to hear the full answer there. Yeah, exactly. But but back to that question of what do we know versus what are we assuming to be true? I mean, you could go in and ask an employee. You might get an honest answer. You never know. know. Well,
1: and why would Bill be willing to offer such a blatantly honest answer (laughs) to his boss? Because his boss can't do anything about it. And that could get ugly or toxic or dysfunctional. Of course it does. You tell me, you show me one tower of knowledge and I'll show you your most cantankerous employee. Why? Because they are trapped in a prison they can't escape from. Without joy. Yeah. Yeah. There's a different path. Go from jail to joy. Because, you know, a lot of people, well, they'll just quit. Yeah, but you know what? If you go into the boss as a tower of knowledge and Bill goes in and says, hey, boss, I'm quitting. I found a job down the street. You know what the boss is going to do? He's going to throw $50,000 more at Bill. And then Bill's going to stay. But Bill's still miserable. And eventually, due to that two or three times, Bill has priced himself out of the market. And now he is trapped in a prison he can't escape from. And I will tell you, my view is humans
0: do not trap well, ever. Mm -hmm well said powerful thoughts there rich so thank you and i do want to thank speaking of pairs when there were some emails going back and forth about getting this scheduled i've gotten used to this interacting with you and menlo i get an email that's signed like in this case lisa and victoria huh. uh-huh. Thank you. Yep. thanks Thanks to them both it's only one email address but there was a pair. the neat thing about that
1: is um Uh, Victoria just went to Iceland a few weeks ago and Lisa's got a big vacation coming up. Guess what? Your level of service wouldn't change at all
0: because they're both gone at the same time. That's very cool. Very cool. So, Rich, thank you um, for being here. It's great talking to you again, as always. Uh, Rich Sheridan, co-founder, CEO and chief storyteller. Of Menlo Innovations, his two books again are Joy Inc. and Chief Joy Officer. Is there a third book uh, in you at some, some point?
1: Percolating around
0: up here, but no contract signed for such. Okay, but we'll look look forward to that and encourage people to go check out um, those previous books. So, Rich, thanks thanks for what you do, thanks for what what you shared. You know, not just here today, but in general. Really appreciate it. You bet, Mark. Thanks for having me on, congratulations on your new book. Well, thank you. Well, thanks again to Rich Sheridan for being our guest today. For links and more information about Rich, his company, Menlo Innovations, his books, and more, look in the show notes or go to markgraven.com slash mistake220. As always, I want to thank you for listening. I hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes, how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive. I've had listeners tell me they started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work. And they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems because that leads to more improvement and better business results. If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me, myfavoritemistakepodcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com.